0: Whatever the assignment, the timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various
1: editions. If there are any men in the room watching this program, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about Snickers.
0: Flash, exclusive, here's front page news. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist?
1: Now what is that? That's not
0: the full story now. This is Byline.
1: Welcome to Byline, our companion series to the United Ireland podcast where we talk to really good journalists about the stories that matter to them. On this uh, month's Byline, Killian Woods is a senior business reporter with the Sunday Business Post. He covers a vast array of stories, uh, but increasingly his work on the levers being pulled in the background regarding the issues of the day particularly with regards to the housing crisis, paints an illuminating picture for readers. His focus seems to be on the systems at play, the people, the funds, the lobbyists, and the stuff that we don't see on the surface. And that uncovers a different kind of narrative around the housing crisis in Ireland, as well as other issues that he works on. We're going to talk about some of that today. Uh, Woods operates beyond the bluster of the commentariat and the polemicists, those dastardly columnists. Uh, By examining what's going on, in the Department of Housing or what the big players in these faceless investment funds we keep hearing about are at, and also by taking individual stories and using them um, as, you know, to kind of illustrate broader systemic issues. Woods' reporting has garnered many fans, particularly Andrea, uh, over the course of the pandemic and, of course, beyond. Killian, welcome to Byline.
0: Thank you so much, you know. I've never been called Woods once in my life. <laughs> Woods. <laughs> That's the so you, uh, you own the honour of calling me Woods for the first and second <laughs> time ever. I like it. It's not bad.
1: Um, we always start line by asking how, when and why you got into journalism, where you grew up and when the trade started calling.
0: Yeah, um, for me... I, I kind of got the idea of I loved the idea of going into sports journalism straight out of school, like a, a secondary school. So when I'd already kind of committed to doing agricultural science and UCD by then, I, I was thinking, like, you know well, it's, it doesn't mean it's uh, over. So I listened to podcasts, I was listening to like, reading a lot of like sport internationally, getting all my hands, getting my hands in everything I could get. So I, why not try and give it a go at, in in college? So I. I was walking through the fresher's tent in UCD and saw the University Observer student newspaper in UCD was looking for people to sign up. I signed up and I think um, I went to a meeting of like one of the first meetings and I didn't put my hand up for something. That was the first mistake. So I didn't make that mistake the second time. Second time I put my hand up for the first album review that was going, which was C6 Steve, uh, which I still listen to today. So it was, I thought it was so cool. Like you get like a free album to review. And then, um, and then I spent a few years in UCD making hopefully all the mistake, big mistakes I'll ever make in my career in that time because I have some horror stories of things going wrong in UCD. It's funny now at the time, mortified as like a teenage, late teens and early 20 year old, thinking this is the end of the world. But I remember interviewing people for like I, I didn't get in sport for a while. I kind of went to the culture first. That's where they wanted people. And I interviewed a guy called a DJ called Laurent Garnier. Yeah, yeah. and I, so you see, now, yeah, well, no, no, I
1: haven't seen, I haven't. Oh, uh, oh
0: right, i will say he's. Well, I thought like I, you know, you're kind of thinking you're starting a piece, you're thinking, how am I going to start this off. It's like Garnier, that's perfect. I'll, I'll, I'll give a little leading questions about you know how his name sounds like a brand of shampoo, and he didn't like that one bit. Um, and then like, but then it was like it felt like embar- I'm. I don't know why. Why I wasn't scared off during this in college. I made loads of like stupid mistakes that would probably embarrass me now more.
1: That is admittedly a terrible way uh, to start an interview.
0: Oh, yeah. it's all awful. Like, and it was loads of leading questions and he knew I was trying that and he wasn't playing. But I remember asking like how green and stupid I was, but just putting my hand up for anything. I interviewed a band called The Chapman Family. I, again, I, these names, all stick in my brain for how embarrassed I am of them. And um, I was like, oh, well, I'll, I'll ask them a question like, you know, the basics, what do you play, like playing in Ireland, you know, what are you working on at the moment? And I thought, oh, here's a killer question. I saw they were playing at this festival recently. I'll ask them how it went. So I asked them, oh, you know, I saw you were playing at this festival, so how did it go playing at SXSW? And I was like, <laughs> uh, I, at the moment, so in the heat of it, I didn't have a clue, but he was probably paused and thinking, like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Who calls it SXSW? But in my head, and that's how green I was, I had no idea what I was doing. I just kind of um, blundered my way through interviews. And I've uh, probably Liam Brady. I, then I got into sport and was doing a bit for the college newspaper. And the final big mistake that is etched into my memory is I was we were I, was, I got kind of blagged my way into an Ireland training session for the soccer team. And on the sideline after the training, Liam Brady was doing interviews and um, he was just doing the huddle. And I said, like, oh, I'll go up here and I'll see." I think I was like I think it was like likes of Emmett Malone and stuff like that. The actual proper soccer correspondent. So I was like, "This is brilliant." And I was like, if there's a quiet, if there's no question, like at the end, and I'm just going to jump in with one. And I did. And I said, um, I, I can't remember who's play, who the player was, but I said, I see that they are playing it with the kind of the starters or win a bib. Does that mean they're starting at the weekend against Italy? And he just looked at me blank. And I was like, Is, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, and I see that they're wearing a bib over there, like that they're, they're starting. He's like, he's not even in the squad. <laughs> and I just like wanted the axe, I wanted the world to swallow me up. And then, it, probably because I wasn't really, it was an out of body experience. Liam Brady patted me twice on the head and said, oh better luck next time, son, and walked away. And that was the end. And in front of all, this, like, all the daily reporters, like, the people I, I, I would know by name from fanboying over them, and just like, oh, that's it, I'm, I'm finished. So, <laughs> my biggest regret of my career to date is that I deleted that audio. I, I no way am I keeping it, I, it was, I recorded it, so I, I just but I wish I didn't delete it because that is uh I'd love to have that now. That's my uh, weird way into journalism through college newspapers.
1: And where did you go after um UCD then? Which has a great uh great kind of journalism ecosystem, I suppose, in in its uh college newspapers.
0: Yeah, I think it just attracts a broad bunch of people because so many people are doing different courses there's no journalism course in ucd or i think there is some form of masters now there's more communications journalism but it's um no pure journalism course in ucd as far as i'm aware still so you're kind of just a bunch of people thrown together and we're like family like we we're all <laughs> we were all a bunch of like i come from a single parent household just me and my mom growing up my whole life and it just seemed like everyone in the paper had like some sort of like family issue like they were, <laughs> they were a single parent family we we're all just like a so we all Bunched together as a family in my years, but yeah, we uh, just—it's a great place to learn in your trade. Rather than I would advise anyone, nothing wrong with going through like the the masters or college courses that you want to do. But I just feel it's an edge having not done that for Mm. for me. And uh, so after college, I went to work for Websummer for a while, and then someone at Websummer recommended me for um, a job on News Talk just as a freelancer. And again, that's I got from News Talk to uh, I was working on the breakfast working the breakfast show, News Talk, and then George Hooks Show. And like Breakfast Show was great. Chris Duny, who was always, you know, always advocated for young journalists. Ivan, a bit different. He called me, um, he said, thanks for your hard work, Connor, on, your, on my final day. <laughs> uh, shows about how tuned in he was. Um, again, lovely guy, but just not quite good with names. And, um, and then even I worked for George Tuck for a good while, just as a freelancer filling in for people. I remember my first week there he said, uh, I, I, he didn't talk to me for days. I thought, oh, this is, this is just how he is. He's just not going to talk to me. Then he called me in for a private meeting in one of the pre rooms while I was doing something at the printers, printing some stuff. And he said, leave the notes behind. You won't need the notes. This is the first words he said to me. He pulled me in. He said, sit down there now. I'm going to have a chat with you. I thought I was getting like fired and told not to come back. And my work was shoddy. And he said, you need to get out of here as soon as you can. Uh, <laughs> You get out of here as soon as you can. You're you're not on the books yet, and you need to just find somewhere else to work. Then, and I'll help you do that because <laughs> you can't work here. And I was like, I was, and then he just walked out. I was like, what was that about? And, uh, and so, news talked then to the journal and working for four at the their business news website, which I helped launch, which has since closed down. Great,
1: right, that four was-, was great, actually.
0: Yeah, we just kind of I felt we did a lot of business stuff through a different angle, or just maybe a bit more of a enticing headlines is probably and you know just from covering different types of business and covering that's where i got into housing really and then from the journal i got poached for the business Post. susan mitchell asked for an interview asked to meet and i said yes and just the rest was was that two years three nearly three years ago
1: so you're with them for about three
0: years Mm, nearly yeah i think three years this in february of next so no i started february 2019
1: Okay. And what kind of stories um, when you were kind of going into the business post then, obviously the, the people in there and and you mentioned Susan Mitchell obviously knew, okay, this person uh, is doing good stuff. They're coming up with good stories, obviously generating stuff yourself is so key in a weekend newspaper. What kind of stuff were you drawn to then, or maybe were you um, given to do, I suppose, when you went to the business post?
0: Yeah, I, 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 I don't, I don't know how to answer that question because I, I not necessarily don't feel I'm drawn to any stories in particular. Like I do a lot of housing reporting now and property, and I suppose it started with just covering property from a business angle. Then I saw that, that it kind of turned into well, I still, I still do cover from a business angle, but it's kind of morphed into more of a housing as a kind of campaign, really, on on showing kind of the dysfunctional nature of it now. So I'm just I'm gravitated towards what I'm good at writing about, really. It's not there's no like big cause I feel I'm I'm fighting against or that I'd like to join or that I'm you know adding to. I just like I was struggling in journalism for a good while. I just couldn't think of good ideas, I couldn't think of I couldn't see how ideas are formed. I was struggling to get interviews, struggling to think of news story ideas. And until then, my editor in Fora, uh, Peter Balkin, gave me some the best advice and I tell it to every journalist that I come across or now who li- li- will listen, is that um, this is how I to property reporting is if you're ever short of a story, just find an empty building and find the owner and there'll be a story about why it's empty. And Honest, that's how I got into kind of reporting a property. That was the way I found stories. I just kind of looked for people who had kind of disputes or problems with their properties. And that turned into covering, you know, just office buildings and covered, covering, you know, property disputes in, in, in just general residential. That's kind of how I gravitated to that. I, so out of housing was nearly a, that I just, I could see a way of getting stories to, so I wouldn't be scrambling around for things to work on. Because mm. I was I was struggling for, I was considering packing it in. Um, when I was at four, because I just couldn't get the knack of it. I couldn't write quick enough. I couldn't um, generate story ideas. I was working long hours and I couldn't see a way out of it. And I think just housing, that something's clicked, I just seem to understand it, or I can see the many new workings of it.
1: Why is that? Why do you think you understand it more than other, you know, issues or or kind of sectors of society?
0: Uh, I have a lot... Well, now I'd say... It's moved on much faster now. I suppose to go back to how it started, but for now, I feel like I understand it well now because I have a lot of, there's a lot of people who I would rely on as good sources. And I don't even sources, even like kind of a little bit. They're, they're more like really, really educated academics, really educated people in housing. Some people you'd be surprised that I won't, I won't break the confidence that they do. They do, they have in me and talking to me regularly people you'd be surprised who would be quite have a big interest in fixing the housing crisis, fixing the dysfunctional natures of the market who would steer me on things and just chatting to everyone. Like I, my, my approach is chat to everyone. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, some people have bad opinions about Johnny Ronan, some people just chatting to him and hearing him out and hearing the other side out from, you know, talking to people like who feel, who feel like, you know, that we need to completely ban funds and get rid of the housing developers who caused the last crash possibly need to be ushered out of the country. Talking to everyone in between. And I think that's the way I understand it. I also like from just generating story ideas, I used to look at planning permissions. I used to look at anywhere that, you know, new property thing, new things were happening in property. And in those sort of things, there's just lots of PDFs and documents to read on housing. And people are putting in reports about why this housing estate needs to be built. And then you read 80 pages on, here's why Kildare is short in one-bed apartments or doesn't have enough studio, but, that's a bad example, but doesn't have enough three beds or has too many four-bed um, homes and oversupplied. You just read that and read and report after report after report, just eventually just see more patterns in it. Like That's why I feel... I try and tell like you see some young reporters now you talk to and they might be feel a bit frustrated that they want to get to that level of understanding a topic very quickly, but it, it does take a long time to start seeing patterns. And that's where some of my best stories have come from is just seeing reading something two years ago and it all oh, and but now it's really relevant. I think mm-hmm. like so I had a story earlier in the year about um the state investing in funds, and I had lots of people trying to tell me, like, that's not a news story, that's not news. It's that's been going on for years. It wasn't. It wasn't news a month previous, be, month before when we hadn't had the Mullen Park story of the housing estate in Barton Yeah, it wasn't news then, but it is now. Despite the fund the investments made years ago, and that's us. I remember reading that in an NTMA report that they that they had invested in these funds, and one one fund name looked familiar. I was like, that looks familiar. I think that I saw that before, and I was trying to find out, remember where I saw it, and that's where I was, and that's probably one of the best stories my career came from, kind of like a two three year lead in. Like that's really how long it takes to start spotting something. Like even just there's an idea I'm working on at the moment and kind of kick myself, I didn't I won't say too much about it, but it's, I can't believe I didn't think about it before now because, but it does just, sometimes it just comes to you. Like just out of nowhere, you just think like, Oh, I hadn't seen that pattern before. I hadn't thought about it that way. And that's, mm-hmm. that's equally annoying when, so you see someone else get a good story and you think, oh, I can't believe like I didn't think about it that way. Like when I think the journal and was this journal the examiner had uh, those good reports on how, Landlords will be able to increase rents by more than 4% mm-hmm. due to the pandemic evictions. And I thought I was kicking myself. How did I not think of that? Like, that's the competitive nature, and you, you want to just get the best stories. So I thought I was raging. I was like, how did I not see that? Or if I did, I think I might have seen it, but thought it was too common knowledge that everyone would know it. But that's not the case. And that's probably the that's where you get too close to a story, I suppose. You can get maybe you know, you know yourself. You can sometimes, because you're so close to a story, you can't see what the actual thing is people don't know about.
1: Yeah, and also how. Like we'll get into the kind of the ingredients of those stories and those patterns that you mentioned. I think pattern is is a really key word in in your work, and that thing of like, you know a story isn't a story kind of until it is, and there can be so many variables or some like catalyst small incident that then shines this massive bigger light on, on the broader issue. um and also what journalists think is common knowledge versus what um the general public you know know, I suppose, yeah. or how it's framed um but let's talk uh, before we get into uh, the the specifics of the, of your reporting on that how has the business post functioned since the pandemic hit
0: well like like you know I, I don't know how much i'm at liberty to say but like sales are up obviously advertising in across the sectors and say take mu- doesn't take much insight to know that it's been decimated you just need to count the amount the fewer ads that are in the papers or how reliant some some like that, that's a, some papers were on the government just to for those ads, like those, a lot of papers were um, reliant on those ads. So advertising decimated, but sales up, you know, it seems like people wanted, I, I can't get into the head though, of people who do want to read news sometimes at the moment, that's maybe a bit more existential question, but like, yeah. I, like why, like so we were doing well Sales salespeople wanted to know the, inf- like, wanted, wanted analysis of what was going on, maybe because it was so hate, unprecedented is the word, but like, People wanted to read in depth about what was going on and, and what they should be looking at for next, especially maybe business owners feeling like, "What's? Should, should I be worried about my staff? Should I worry about my rent next? Will I need to be paying? How, how will i going to manage the, the, the tax situation at the other end of it?" Um, so we're, we did well through. It, I feel like we've added subscribers. You know, it's gone, in, which is hard to do. You know, any any subscriber model, it's tough to do that. You see other papers now trying it. I think the one benefit we've had is that we've always been behind a paywall, um, which can, it's. There's, there is research to that shows it's, it's harder to turn a free product into a subscribe product instead of having something oh, you've always had to pay for now becoming you have to pay for it. and the premium level premiumness attached to that and thinking in people's minds but yeah overall I think we've done very well in the pandemic and some people like I think myself have made a bit of a name for myself and even Rachel Lavin another, one who's made a really big name for herself Daniel Murray got a lot of big when, when Susan left that was a really big void he had to fill got some really big stories in that area and Peter Dwyer as well he's covered the publisher and story uh, like, like I don't think anyone else has You're right. really, really in-depth coverage of a court case. We've a few of us have kind of taken the hold of the opportunity. Although mm-hmm. I, I don't like to call it an opportunity because like, it's a terrible thing that happened. I wish it didn't happen, but, um, you know, we kind of got to be- make the best of what you are dealt.
1: What's your workload like? Like how many stories on average, would you say you're filing a week?
0: I kind of, um, depends how many people you can kind of spot who's on I suppose if we have a full compliment nearly I would do a feature and maybe four or five news stories uh, and then the best get picked like some some don't run or some get held for the next week but I, I found our, our workloads quite good like we were given the space to um, space to work on things and work on things we want as well like uh I'm, I work a lot on housing now. I, I need to balance that out with other folks. I'm a business reporter. I need I do balance it out with other topics, and I, I don't want to either pigeon my pigeonhole myself just in that mold. You want to be a bit more open and do, covering other topics. But um, our work workload's quite good. Like, yeah. But then if there's a full complement and you see the news list is really full, you wouldn't necessarily break your back to do the sixth or seventh story because it just won't it, won't. it won't squeeze in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about housing and your, um, it's not a pigeonhole, of course, but you are, you do, you have brought something new to uh, the reporting on this, I think, um, nationally. And I want to talk about considering that you are kind of living and breathing this stuff all day, on the surface, um, You know, people like me write columns about the housing crisis and may occasionally kind of go down a rabbit hole into one specific thing and and pull that out as, you know, an example of dysfunction or corruption or inequity or something like that. And then there's kind of the day-to-day reporting on what the government is doing and their ever-mythical plan, uh, which uh, I presume will kind of come to light soon. And then there's... um, the stuff that like Ian Kia was doing um, in the recession, um, you know, that kind of documentary that he made, like Who's Buying Ireland? I think it was called. And then this kind of context of like vulture funds and investment funds and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of that discourse did not feel tangible or real or felt uh, on the ground until um, the last few years when people began to understand the real life impact of how the economy of housing has changed and the kind of the broad, the the global aspect of it, I suppose. As you see it now, um, what is your perspective on the housing crisis in Ireland? I know that's like a massive question, but how have you seen it morph and how would you characterize it over the last few years to now?
0: Yeah, yeah, it is a big question. I I was looking back over, for, so there's the journalism awards recently we had to you know, enter pieces into it. I, I, you go through your work to see what you've done over the past year, and I actually was surprised I've written uh, at the Business Post in general. I've written more than a hundred articles specifically on different aspects. Like could well, there be of the housing crisis? That could be one story on a a ter- like a, a rent, built rent terror being. Oppose or blocked by the courts. One could be like a, a focus on how small investment small investors from Israel are buying up um, secondhand homes. It, like I'm surprised at the volume of pieces I've done in the last year alone. And I don't think if I if I if I started out last August to try and plan to do that many, I wouldn't have done. It. It's a lot, I do fall. I kind of do fall a bit between different topics. And someone advises to look at something in particular, like look at this particular policy, and or look look at this trend, or does this report that says you need to cover it. And that's how I kind of feel I've got a grip of where I've just through near pure chance in some ways. I I've, I've focus on housing, but by pure chance, I've managed to cover a lot of different areas of that. So I feel like I see different aspects of it and how it's morphed is that I can't necessarily answer why it's more important now for some people. Like, I don't know what the tipping point was. Was it a certain, like, was it, is it just in people's heads that once they see a certain, their rent hit a certain level, or their outgoing, outgoings for, for a mortgage hit a certain level, that that's just a tipping point for them that that's too much to pay in accommodation. Maybe it's something we can't find in our heads. But like, where, where, where it's morphed from, is, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to actually put into words. It's, just, it's gone from, over, over a five-year period, we can see it's gotten much, much worse. But I think it's been so gradual, like week on week, month on month, it's gotten gradually worse. It's hard to say exactly what has caused that. If there's one big force, and that's why I think there's not one big force. There's many, many different actors coming together. It's the states, investment funds, it's regular buyers outbidding each other. It's it's the mom and pop giving money to kids to to, to buy homes. It's, it's and that, none of those necessarily are wrong. I'm just saying those are different aspects that are, have all contributed to where we're at now, and they're all competing with each other in the same market. And at the same time, government policy is coming in that is incentivizing certain ones and. That then they're propped up in the pedestal, then all of a sudden they're they're the best, the best bet in town. And then they're taken down, another one goes up, but they're just constantly tweaking at it. And I don't even know if that begins to answer the question, but it's um
1: it's, well let's if, take let's take like the three yeah. so like, like if if to be super broad about it, like there's probably three components to the crisis. There's the state uh and um their policies and what a lot of people characterize as their inaction in terms of building and they would then kick that back onto the legacy of the crash and the recession perhaps. Um, Then there's the global investment structures and funds part that are, um, uh, has become an element of it that we didn't have before, let's say, Uh, certainly not to to this level. And then there's kind of more the cultural component, I suppose, the human experience, um, the the homelessness, the emergency accommodation part, the mental health crisis around high rent, the struggle, all that kind of stuff. If you were to explain, um, that's super broad, right, as we know, but if you were to explain to somebody who had no idea about um, why the housing crisis has got this bad and where we're at in 2021 and they had no context about Ireland or whatever, what would you say to them?
0: How it's gotten so bad is we keep tweaking at it. I think that's, and, that, and as I was kind of falling around my words there, but we keep tweaking at it and, and incentivizing or disincentivizing certain parts of the market. And it is, in fairness, that that is papering over the cracks. Um, So I think that's the way I'd say that that's why it's broadly why it's, it's getting worse is that we do, we, we're make, we're, we're doing, and and some, and some of the papering over the cracks is very, very thin. You know, like I think the, the action taken by the state against personally, I think the action taken in the state by, um, Against investment funds now has been significantly watered down from what it was even loose, what it was loosely. by the fact that now the main thing that funds are here is the lease of the state, and now all of a sudden that's not incorporated in in these like new stamp duty rules to clamp down. And that a lot of the things they're trying to do is like, Ireland's property crisis is getting much worse because they they are they they seem to put it through loads of policy to do it, but the real change that needs to happen is impossible because. Either the Attorney General says it's not; it can't be done, whether it's a rent freeze. It's not, we're not certain whether that would work or not, but that's an example of where we can see that big drastic changes that are needed can't be done because we feel our property laws are too restrictive. And in that case, but who's then that law serving? You know, that law is meant to serve the people in Ireland and it's suddenly now it's serving a landlord class that is possibly not even based in Ireland, possibly not even paying tax in Ireland. So that's what's preventing us from getting any fix to it at the moment is that we just see it so it's so entrenched in that we can't we can't say to someone that you can't buy up homes in bulk anymore because really like their property their property rules and ownership rules are too strict. Same like the the, the reason that the plan to ring fence homes um, for buyers, is gonna take years to come to effect because it won't affect any homes that have planned permission or are in the planning permission system right now. Or that weren't pre, pre, prior to um to May May of this year when the actual thing came in. So I think that's how I explain it to someone who's coming out flat is that we have a state that's meddling all the time but can't meddle in the actual things that would change to make proper fixes other than papering over the cracks for certain parts of society.
1: There seems to be a point of view in government that when people attack the uh, investment fund's role, that like, no, no, you know, some of this is necessary or, you know, that's not the entirety of the problem, which people aren't saying it is. Um, But of course, people are very concerned that, you know, a group of people in some boardroom somewhere are, you know, flipping through a portfolio and there's estates in Ireland and that's just a part of something that they can squeeze, get a good yield on, return um, and make a return to their shareholders, which is, is not, you know, about home ownership, obviously. Um, But do you think that there is um, an undue amount of attention put on investment funds and, or do you think that their role is quite seismic? How would you characterize their role in our quote unquote market?
0: At that, yeah, that's a good point. Like I, I hear, that, and that's you kind of summed up the that their side is that they could they come back and say, well, actually, the state is a bigger buyer of homes of of developers, and actually, the state is much more involved in meddling with it. But why I feel like it's what the, when, when people say like, oh, funds only buy this many homes or they only own this amount of the market, I think it's fifteen thousand. But again, that's that's industry data. That's not necessarily. I wouldn't say it's exactly oh, definitely reliable, and they own only a certain percentage of homes it's more that they have, although they own a this very small part of the market, they can have such a huge distorting effect, which is why funds are much more important and much more important part of the market and why they why they needed regulation and possibly need more regulation. It, and same same reason say, you hear that co-living, when the, when it was the, the people who are in favour of co-living say, we need more accommodation for one-person households or one-person units. Like, agreed, we definitely do. Is co-living the answer? Possibly not. It's like, well, You know, there's people use it in other countries, like, but it doesn't will that work in an Irish context? Because if you bring in co-living and it can now go on any residential site, all of a sudden the land value is completely distorted for anyone who wants to build anything other than co-living. Same with the student accommodation, anyone who wants to build anything like student accommodation and co-living. Because why wouldn't you, if you have a plot of land in Dublin, why would you build just regular three-bed apartments for people to buy if you can build something that will get you much more money. And actually, if you did make a decision not to build co-living or student accommodation, you'd actually be in breach of your, kind of the obligation you have to your shareholders to make the most money back. Like you can't, you can't stand over the meeting saying, we have three options. We can build a 200-bed co- co-living facility in, on, on, you know, in Dublin City Centre. We can build student accommodation there, if it's the same size, or we can build 80 apartments. And people are like, why would we build 80 apartments? It's like, oh, you know, if we could sell them to people and people who live in the city, it's like, well, no, but we'll go for the first two options they make us much more money and they're much more easier to sell on then as, a, as, a, as an asset. So I think that's, that's where we kind of have a broken system where that's, and that's why funds are much more important. That's the distorting effect they can have. We see that in the rental market at the moment. But even though they control such a small amount of units, all the units they're bringing to the market are at a much higher rent than the, the regular rent in Dublin. That's why, and that's why rents are going up still faster than that kind of 4% they're meant to be capped at is because anything new comes to the market can come to the market at any price you want, really. And that's then benchmarking that, hold on, every every other property that's in the area has to start catching up with that. And that's why rents in those properties are definitely rising 4%. So I hope that, explains that, that might explain why funds are, although they're a small part of the market, they have a huge distorting effect because they kind of have much more of a, a control over a, 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 even though there's a small amount of properties There can be one-off landlords or much smaller landlords and they can just have just that distorting effect and we've seen that and there's, there's an investigation into them now for price fixing then i suppose it's, it's not necessarily the, it's the people who operate them for funds but that there is a price fixing investigation into funds at the moment in ireland because they have been seen to be charging a certain amount of rent but then and putting it out on the books but actually not charging that in practice
1: mm. um who's the, who's leading that investigation
0: I see the RT, the RTB is as far as I'm R2B. aware because the I think it was the I don't know if it's necessary in his remit to tell them to, but it was Dar, Dar- Irvine did did contact them after we did a piece earlier this year about that. Um, we we didn't call it price fixing. They they that that's the, that's what they called their price fixing investigation. We showed it as um in the Business Post as being they were charging incentivized rent, so they kind of charge you ten months rent over the space of twelve months. Mm-hmm. Therefore, is it actually are you actually paying monthly rent of the twelve month rate or are you actually paying the saving across 12 months.
1: Gotcha. I'll get into like the specific stories um, that you've done because I'm, I'm, there's a few that I'm really interested in talking to you about. Um, but so it seems to me then that the key, uh, as plenty of politicians will say, uh, in uh, opposition politicians, obviously, uh, is that the key to our dysfunction is actually rooted in this um, kind of land speculation uh, culture that to, you know, and this is also what's causing loads of other distortions around amenities, I suppose, as well. Like, why build a football pitch when you can build, you know, a luxury student accommodation block? Or, um, you know, why not knock down that bowling alley in Stirlorgan to build apartments and then all of a sudden nobody can go bowling and that isn't valued? But, you know, like it's, it's the, yeah. the the kind of the the cultural aspect um, it is no longer valued. Do you think it is really about, like, we need to break that land speculation um, Ill, I suppose that that has kind of infected um, and distorted where we're at.
0: Yeah, because in the only uh, because in that model, let's say we let funds away at it, and just that's that's we we decide right. You know what? We're going to give them a chance. We're going to give them a chance to be the ones who tried to solve the housing crisis, and they've had many years at it, now and they haven't. Or what they'll bring to market is stuff that suits that model which will be high rents like every there's 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 no model that they're building at that they won't be able to they won't have to charge that level of rent like it's it's just not feasible for them to some some of them have huge value some some of them are really really big entities that that can sit on property but for a few years but it can't be done over like the lifetime of the asset like there's capital dock and the um Near Three Arena is like nearly still vastly empty. That can't go on forever. So, but they still have to in the meantime charge huge rents. And then there's a crash. And then what happens is who comes in to buy it? It won't be sold as was a one-offs. Like it'll be sold on bulk because it's it is a bulk asset. It'll be sold to another. And this would this is where you just get the cuckoo funds selling to the vulture funds. But I think it is we need to that land speculation is quite key to and breaking that will be quite key to to fixing it because. At the moment, the, the only model that works for landscape when they, in that game is rental accommodation and only rental accommodation at a certain level. Like I was talking to a developer a while ago and they're looking at more, they're looking doing flats in Pimlico. And like, they're saying that he wants to start at rent at 2,100. And I say, like who, who's, your, who's your market for that? Who's, who's your actual, like, who do you think can pay that? I, I, I don't see them. Like, I, I feel like I'm quite middle-class, work in media and have friends who have good jobs. No one's partnered with that money. Like in in their life to to pay for like a flat and to look one bed possibly two bed.
1: Mm. Let's get into the um the sto- the stories uh, that you've been working on. Um, how do you feel now about the infamous estate in Kildare?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose our reporting, like, and like my colleague Michael Brennan had that story first, and then I suppose we I helped them the weeks after that. We kind of teamed up and. And Aidan Regan pitching as well with a lot of analysis of the situation to um, to kind of analyze like what was going on, explain why it was important.
1: So tell us it, about the it, genesis of that story and how how your reporting kind of followed on from that.
0: Yeah, so the genesis of the story was, I suppose, a t- was a tip-off. it was a tip off, like that. I got the same tip off. I was off on holidays the week it came in, and you know, you get a t- text from someone saying like, "This look, have you seen this? Is this a state that's just there's a bunch of people have been told and they're posted? I think it was someone sent me." There's a link to someone on Facebook just posting something angrily. That it was a screenshot of that saying, like, I've just been told by this this crowd, there, I think it was Sherry Fitzgerald, that we're not um we're not getting their home anymore. And even though we were kind of t- told we were, and that that's of oh, thinking that's interesting. So more of an interesting case than obviously the funds buying up apartment blocks. Now we're seeing people who were promised homes or thought they were promised homes. Maybe right, maybe they weren't as far along as they thought they were been told now that actually they weren't getting their homes anymore. So we are seeing now the housing crisis, not just affecting apartments, not just affecting stuff in the commuter belt, but affecting something quite even further afield. Like, you know, like it's, it is quite far. Minute is, I know it's in the commuter belt at Dublin, but it's, it's seen as the, the, refuge, of, um, the refuge of the first-time buyer. If you can't buy... Really in the city, your closest city, then you kind of think that's very minute. There's nothing wrong with minute, but that's that's probably the last place to fall back to. Otherwise, you're kind of getting closer to other cities. You're all of a sudden you're living in Athlone, you're living in, you're, you're, then the other side, you're living in Galway, you're living in Roscommon. So, how I feel about it now is I think the reporting did, did the work. I, it, the homes are back in the market. I, I must get, keep an eye on who actually gets them and who buys them. May, maybe another fund will come in and buy Who knows? Um, maybe they'll come in and, and, and buy them Um, and we still don't know how they how they necessarily ended up back in the market like it was speculated that um, the bad I suppose bad feeling around them is is the reason why they've ended up back in the market I wouldn't necessarily buy that these funds don't have emotions (laughs) they're not people like the people work for them but they don't like they don't don't feel bad about themselves, about a bunch of people posting negative things about their actions. They just get on with it and pe- hope people forget. I'm sure they still have that estate that they bought in North County Dublin. Um, you know, that was a, a bunch of houses as well. They haven't, out of their goodness of their own heart, gotten rid of those. So it, I feel good that the report had some effects. And I think the weeks after that, we just, again, just chatted to people about try to chat to people who lost out and get in their homes, Talk to people who, who are getting a home there still and worried. Worried about what they were going to be worried is the wrong word because they weren't think they didn't think some they were going to listen to people they didn't want or people who were going to be rowdy or anything like that. They just were thinking, like, I bought in Mullen Park to two people I talked to, same story. I bought Mullen Park so that my kids grow up and they can have another person next door who's also has kids and then they're best friends for life because they grow up together, they play in the street. But if it's just a bunch of intel workers coming in and out every three years. Like, is that that's going to affect my child's childhood? And it's not the be all and end all. They still have a home. They still feel very lucky out of that. They were just telling their stories. So we just tried to tell the story from on the ground, as on the ground as possible, what was going on, and then just show people that this is, the next step was, put it in context, that this is not just a one-off. This is now happening a lot. And digging up more examples of it was just trying to build, build on the evidence to... To show that this is now a proper trend going on in Ireland, that's not just a one-off example because it was trying to be betrayed as a one-off example. But there are other housing estates been bought up, and there are other housing estates been that are that investors are still looking at. I think we're just waiting for the next one because um, it's going to happen. Like they're they in a good investment bet at the moment.
1: Yeah, and and again, this goes back to the patterns. You know that, that you that you identify like that thing that people were like, oh, this is some like weird thing that happened. It's like no, this is actually the system functioning as it has been designed or has the mm. or as the ball has been dropped. Were you surprised by the reaction to that story, the oh, political totally. reaction, the public to- reaction?
0: Totally. I didn't like, you know, I I, I absolutely, I like, didn't think it was going to blow up that much. I knew it was an interesting, when I, when I saw then like, that it was on the news list that week, I was like, oh, that's an interesting way. That, that is, I'm glad they're covering it and that's an interesting way of looking at it. Now, I don't even know if I would have framed it the same way. I think in journalism, it can be, timing is huge like you know if there's just nothing else in the news if there's a bit of fatigue over the pandemic maybe just we hit a patch there where like i think you know how fickle it can be like if all of a sudden pfizer said actually we can't give you all of your vaccines for the next month that story would have blown out of the water and wouldn't have been important like it would have it would never have seen the light of day And maybe we, and, and you would have lost your chance because it's hard to you can't reignite that story in august when it suits you like you can't, that's not really how it works, sitting on stories and, and trying to find a time it hits, you just kind of throw a lot out there. And I just, it's great that it did because it's been, I've been racking my brain trying to trying to get people to understand why this is really important. And not in a trying to like, not in a way of campaigning necessarily to try and tell people what to think, just to try and showcase and get this a bit more, a bit more coverage of the fact that it is happening. And it's not just a once off, that there are a lot of homes when both bought, and so, yes, yeah, so I, I was surprised because um, it just looked like another... Like, to me, it looked like an interesting case of it was now out in the suburbs. But whether people found that interesting, you can't tell them what to be interested
1: in. Mm. And there's also the kind of um, the bittersweet aspect of it for people who live in cities who obviously have been dealing with the bulk buying of apartment blocks and bulk buying of loads of stuff. And you could really see who... Who was being valued in the political sphere, right? Like you know, the yeah. the mythical young family uh, outside of Dublin was now being uh, undercut or usurped, and that wasn't on. I think that caused a lot of a lot of resentment and hurt, actually, for people as well who are struggling to rent a flat or an apartment or whatever in Dublin or Cork or Galway.
0: But it's also, I think, I wonder, and I've never kind of gotten to the bottom of. but I wonder if um. I wonder if Fianna Fall and Fianna Gael are thinking a lot about it and how rental accommodation going out into those areas is, is not good for their future, their parties. Not not mm-hmm. just not just because those people feel screwed over and they're gonna try and vote in Sinn Fein for the rest of rest of eternity. It's more that like just those parties are traded off having owners, owners of homes, owners of homes vote for those parties. And if fewer people are gonna own their homes in the future. What are they voting for? Like, what, what's the, They then they have an identity crisis. Fien- Sinn Fein, another party, parties are tapping into that renter, and, and seem to be able to get their message to them because it's hard because I've never been canvassed once in the apartment I've lived. Yeah, never once. Ne- never, once. So, so no one from Fianna Gael or Fianna Falls canvassed me before. It's that's the same. No, Sinn Fein haven't either. Sock Dems haven't either. But I see their message gets to me. Like it, it, they they do get to me their message, and I and their message was clearer. So I, I wonder how. And I and I'm I feel like maybe uh, ex- both of us are probably not necessarily a typical ABC one wouldn't read a bit of the news or we we are immersed in, in media and feel like we supposed sort to of absorb a lot of it. But I wonder how that those parties are gonna they, they won't survive a rental society like Lysophina like, Fall and So I think they I wonder if they're now worried actually worried. And you see that in some of the parliamentary meetings, how scared they are. About this is actually maybe maybe that's why it blew up. They actually saw an end to their parties. If we are going this way, if housing estates are are up for grabs now, where where do we get our voters from?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about uh, a total contradiction uh, in the housing crisis. And you always know when something's really dysfunctional when there are these contradictions. And you've written about this as well. Uh, the whole narrative is that you know there just aren't enough. Um, homes, yet we have empty apartments across Dublin City. Tell me about what you've kind of found looking into that. So, Mostly
0: what we found is um, myself and Sarah, um, Sarah Taff-McGuire have done, done a good bit of work on this. And we've cross-referenced the RTB data, database for a lot of new so cross cross reference sorry, the um, the Airco database with the or the RTB database to try and see how many of these really new buildings, really new rentals, and we've only uh, there's not too many of them come on stream yet, but there's a good few that are maybe three years old now at this stage. Good uh, near, near a couple of thousand at this stage. You can kind of still, so if they're there's a lot of them now have never been rented before. They've never been used. They're absolutely so you, so you can categorically say that that's a sad empty. Since it was since it was essentially built, and that's what we found. We just found that there's a lot of luxury apartments. And luxury is maybe the wrong word because I look at some of the specs and they're not like they, they charge luxury prices or they charge premium end prices. and Maybe aren't exactly premium and quality um, per se, but we just find that they're struggling to get rid of them. They just can't find the people at those at those price points. And and we're not talking about ten grand penthouses or so those that those aren't necessarily shifting either. Is it's just a People charging three thousand for a one bed in uh, near the IFSC. I, I just don't think people who work in the IFSC and are, have a lot of money still are a comfortable apartment with that much money for an apartment, even for a short amount of time. Um, and so how many are we talking? At least, at, there's at least at the moment in. Like our last, so we've looked specifically at um, one investment crowd, Kennedy Wilson, because what we found is it's much easier to report on them because they publish it all. <laughs> they do all the heavy lifting for you. Some other groups don't. We're looking at about easily a thousand at the moment in Dublin City Centre. Um, and that's a, that's just a conservative estimate, I'd say. And then you know we see just in general vacant dwelling statistics of about one hundred thousand in all of Ireland. Now that's very different. But some of those will be derelict, some. But again, they are structures that can be brought back into use and put in, put put into use for housing. So there's, there's that, there's the wider derelict and just underused housing stock. And then there's the um, luxury apartments, which easily about thousands of them in double at the moment. And um, those- Like Candy Wilson were holding on to a couple of hundreds themselves, like just stuff they brought to market in maybe two years ago and they can't shift. And they, and they say it's part of a normal cycle for renting out. But if there's a short, this is again, as you said, contradiction, there's a dysfunctional market is apparently a shortage of rental accommodation, but still they can't find a price point. To rent them out. At. That mm. makes no sense. But that so that makes absolutely no sense.
1: So there's like, let's say, ballpark in, in the city center now. Not we're not talking uh, outside of the city center, a thousand uh empty apartments. And these are new apartments. They're not they're not old apartments. New is in like
0: the last maybe three, four years.
1: Yeah. 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 And with how much do you you know, the obviously there's one really easy way to fill those apartments, uh, and that would be to drop the rent. Um, but obviously that would have a knock-on impact for uh, the much bigger um, management um, mm-hmm. agencies the fund. and the funds themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so how much of that is, you know, and this is maybe a bit of an inflammatory term, but like the kind of cartel pricing of renting, because just hearing from friends um, myself who maybe have moved into a new place and, you know, a mate of mine just said, move in a very nice place, and he just said, you know, pretty much every gaff in this block is empty, yet I'm paying this amount of money. Um, what, Like, what's the legal uh, or competition um, aspect of that that says, like, rent is... Like, we constantly hear about the market, the market, the market, and rent is... Price points are meant to be market-led by demand and by supply. But if the supply is actually there and the people who are managing that property, own that property, or the fund over that property won't drop the price to get the people in. Is is that legal?
0: Well, and, and this is where you get to the problem of government intervention to try and fix it has actually possibly exacerbated the problem. And again, and I would have, I would have supported the idea of CAP, of those, of the, Maybe it personally wouldn't gone far enough, but the idea of four four percent rent cap every year like that's that's a good idea in principle.
1: That became uh, a target though, but for- that's a,
0: tar- as a target. and also because it's because it's at that level, they're so reluctant to not lease it to lease it out at a lower price because they'll find it very hard to get it back up because they can drop they can drop the price whatever they want. There's no problem in them dropping it down by fifty percent if they just want to get it used. The problem is once they drop by fifty percent once, they face a long road to getting it back up to where it was. So that's where a government intervention is, you know, well intentioned, but hugely like huge mistake to do it because how how do you how do you because the funds now are reacting to that by keeping it empty. Yeah, that, that's what I'm hearing. What you're hearing with your friends, like just people are living in apartment blocks that are empty, and you know you just look drive by some of them, they're they're blacked out, they're just empty. Yeah. But they but at the same time, I'm surprised some of them aren't being leased or being targeted for the council. Maybe maybe they are now. Maybe that's where some of them are going to come this year. This year is they'll end up in social housing stock but um I, that, again another dysfunctional part of the market it doesn't it really doesn't make sense other than i think as, as you alluded to there funds are worried if they drop the rent it'll devalue the property asset and then it'll be worth less just in general which is why they're bench they're they're recording the rents at a higher level and giving rent free periods because then it looks like and then it looks like they looks like it's still worth that value then again surely in due diligence that will come up. It's like, oh, you, you say you're charging this rent, but I see the revenue coming in doesn't match this. So how can it be worth that? I, like, may, I, I like to think these people are very, very smart and they've got some edge on me that I can't think of. I think it keeps a bit humble, but I don't know how this all fits together. I think we have quite a toothless competition watchdog that won't look into it. Just won't, won't even answer, but it won't, won't say like whether whether that is legally dodgy. Um, You know, surely they can have some word on it, but they don't.
1: I want to touch on a, just an absolutely crazy story that you have covered um, about the Johnstown estate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Can Tell me about that. For pe- for people who don't know anything about this, what is the story?
0: So the Johnstown estate is owned by a businessman called Barry English. Um, he owns Winthrop Engineering and he's a very well-known businessman. He would have given evidence in the uh, Mahan Tribunal and um, he... He bought the Johnson Station and fields. Just out, it's on the, way, the road between Dublin and Galway, or between Dublin and Athlone, and it's just out there. And he bought that in 2015 after the original crowd that owned it um, went and um, bust in the recession, and he bought it. And attached to the, or kind of so so complicated because the legal um, ownership of the land is, is so tenuous, but. These right beside the hotel there's a bunch of houses essentially. Now they're kind of like lodges there but they're a two bedroom they're in they're nice enough. They they look more lodge style but they, you could live in them like easily.
1: So these and, are the kind of houses that you kind of that you'd find like the other bit of a hotel for families who don't yeah. want to be in the actual main hotel rooms or whatever. Yeah,
0: exactly. Or or just like you know if they're having a wedding a lot of accommodation they could put a bunch of people in together to make it a bit cheaper. Yeah. And but the deal was in 20 when the hotel was built a bunch of people were said if you give if you buy the if you buy these off us now before they're built we will um, we, we will buy them back off you at the same price in like seven years now in that seven years time and they and they got to keep the rent and do some tax-free arrangement there where the the rent was tax-free and they were able to essentially pocket that as their profit and then get the property bought back off them the full price Um in the seven-year period, hotel goes bust, that deal is now defunct. And now these people, a classic example of accidental landlords or accidental property owners, they end up left with these properties. Now, now the time now the market has reignited. The properties are worth a lot a lot again. Some of them have kept a hold of them, some of them lost their properties um in the crash, obviously they're taken off them. Um and now they look. It's, it doesn't take much to see that the hotel would love to buy them all because they would prefer to own all the properties so they can re- rent them out. And it's also much easier to manage the whole estate if they own all of them. They don't need to worry about other people coming in. They don't need to worry about people being loud or anything like that. Or they, if if it is a problem, they can intervene and say, "Well, you're not staying here anymore. This is a private property. We're removing you from it." So if there's any problems, they can do that. And they just manage the They own the land, lots of the lands, like they own the land around each of the homes as well. So it's complicated in that they man They have to manage the land around the ho- homes, but the homes still own theirs. Now the owner of the hotel wants to buy them, and he um, and he has allegedly gone in and cut their gas and cut their water pipes, and to try and you know I, 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 in some sort of dispute they've had, the homeowners retaliated by painting their homes pink um, and putting up spray painting. You know where our water pipes were cut. The next move was the again, again allegedly the hotel. When it, the, all these forty-foot containers are branded with Johnston Estate um, logos, so they dropped in forty-foot containers around them to a uh, to what stacked too high to um, to block off the graffiti that was on them. And now they're welding those containers together to kind of restrict their access to the homeowners' access to their own properties.
1: So there are stacks of forty-foot shipping containers
0: just lining around a home, the
1: surrounding just- houses like a like a like a we're in like in World War Z when they yeah built, they yeah exactly wall. Yeah,
0: just, yeah like if you it like don't if if there was an zombie apocalypse tomorrow it would be the ideal home to have you're not getting through. Or the, or you at least you've a little only a little bit left to seal off and then you're you're sorted. Um, but it's it's just I've never seen anything like it before. It's it's and that's why we I'm so keen to get a photographer down there to get the pictures of it because it's it's st- I try I don't do it justice explaining it and you need need to see it in person because oh a container at a home that sounds a bit mad but then you see it, it's like oh she's it's so like they're thick as well so you're not going to cut through it like if or if you're cutting through it to get through the end you're cutting through another layer of container as well on the side so. It's just galling to see. I think if anyone, the best way to do it is just look up the piece we did and you'll see the pictures of it because it's, I've never seen anything like it in my career. And it's just a dispute like I've, I've not covered before. And again, I'm, maybe there's elements like it's not maybe black and white, as black and white as some people tell their sides of the story, but I've never seen someone go to that ex- that, those extremes to, you know, get their way.
1: What's think. going to happen there? Do you think?
0: Well, Mead County Council are now investigating it on a planning enforcement or uh, unauthorized development. So, um, um, basis. So, like, like, an example would be like, in, like to place it in an example. Last year, there was a coffee shop, let's say in Galway, that put up a container outside their thing to try and make more extra space for people to sit down and serve people. They've been told you can't put that in place because that's actually counts as building because you've put a structure in place. This is the exact same principle. They've put in these containers without planning permission, and now they're going to be either told to re- remove them or they're going to have to get or they're going to have to retrospectively get planning permission to keep them in place. Um, and it's unlikely. Usually, they're not. You don't reward people for doing unauthorized development. You'll make them. You won't let that, let them away with that. You'll make them remove them and then apply again and try and put them in again properly. That's probably the, of course, but the Gardaí won't look in, won't bring any matters to court and these people don't have the money to go to court. Um,
1: Why so won't the Gardaí do that?
0: They say it's a civil matter.
1: Mm, a classic.
0: Yeah, like, and that's the, yeah, like, but, that but you know, again, I I kind of tiptoe around the subject because you never know what the full story is. But, you know, in this case, I saw with my own eyes, the water pipes for these homes have been dug up on the lands of the hotel, particularly, specifically, it's very important. They've been dug up in the lands of the hotel and they've been filled in with steel and concrete. Now, I don't know why a homeowner would do that. In fact, they'd be trespassing on the hotel's property if they did that. I don't know how that, like, that's not a, and they call that civil matter, but someone's been denied water to their property. Um, you know, but apparently that's a civil matter. I've never caught. It's it's really hard to put into words. I've actually never seen anything like it before. When I saw it from my own eyes, I was like, "This is crazy!" Like the extremes some people go to to win an argument.
1: What stories that you've written um, or you've reported on with regards to housing um, do you think are very important? in small ways or big ways that haven't landed as much? Because as you say about, um, you know, the infamous uh, uh, estate uh, in Maynooth, like it, it just landed and there's loads of reasons for that. Um, but is there, are there other things that you kind of file and go, I've got it, this is another one, you know? Get yeah, the like- sixth one on the line. <laughs> But then um, they just don't take off Which happens all the time Like to everyone
0: Yeah it do- I, I feel like you see I, I'm, I'm re- In fairness not In fairness me To out myself a bit I'm, re- I'm revisiting Some of the greatest hits That didn't land In the <laughs> few years before that To try and pump them out again It's like Oh that that's a good one But it just needs to repackage Like that one. Like we've been covering The idea that Um Homes are being leased by the state from funds for social housing for ages, but it didn't land because it wasn't, it was, people saw it and people recognised it was important. Like that, there was a a deal in Dunnery where they're just paying 2,300 in rent for, for apartments that are just one and two beds. And I can't believe that didn't blow up at the time, but now m- people are much more interested in the idea of the, com- the uh, country or the state leasing from funds. It's hard to see. Uh, say, um, I think still what's, what's untapped still is and what the new kind of story, if we're kind of fishing around, and looking at is, I think we're seeing short term lets having, returning to make a quite sizable impact on the market. And in an already constrained rental market, if they return in any significant way, that'll be really distorting.
1: So this is um, Airbnb come, uh, the return yeah, of Airbnb?
0: Kind of, yeah, because those homes now have, um, some some of them have been kept off the market. Some of them just kept an Airbnb for a long time, and we're now seeing a lot of, very little rental stock in the market. And um, so, it was the DAFT report this week showed that there's very little rental stock, and an extraordinary low. Even um, that's what the DAFT report said. And there's very few. I think it's 800 homes to lease in the whole fewer than 800 homes to lease in outside of Dublin, which is really low. And that's going to be a huge problem for the government. Crazy,
1: crazy low number.
0: But I don't know how people. Like, how do you work remotely? And how do you move out of cities? How do you encourage people to, you know, to go to other parts of the country? Out of, if there's just nothing to live in, um, but it doesn't. But it doesn't seem like there's a huge. It seems like there's a lot. There is a bit of activity in the second-hand sale market. Maybe that's because all these landlords are getting out of the game. Again, that will increase in, in, um, importance on the funds and reliance on the funds, and, and then bring it to the market, which I think is possibly a, a dangerous way to go because you don't want to. You don't have your eggs all in all one basket like that. You don't want to be reliant on one. I think mean, the untold story still is that will come out more and more is, is how much the state's not doing. Mm. I think that that's we kind of saw a snapshot of that last year where seventy five percent of the homes that were brought for were, that were brought delivered for social housing. Although I hate to use the word delivered, were um were from developers. They were bought or leased from developers who then who then sold them onto a fund, um because the state was leasing them that's probably going to come out much more and be and that will be the hugely damaging thing for, for this government is when it's becomes more evident year on year that they're just not building homes and i don't think people uh, i'd be interested in what even you think of this but i don't think they're going to um i'd be very i say to some politicians now it's like you're a bit worried about your kind of future in the country like whether you'll be able to live here when you're in your retirement age because people are going to so angry. Like I've talked to people, they're so angry. I post something on Twitter and people are like, resign, hashtag resign Leo, pitchforks out, revolution needed. And that language, I don't like to see that language, I think. And I, I sometimes I worry, am I stoking the fires here? Am I only showing problems when there is some stuff that's happening that's sort of helping? But um, I'd, be, I'd be worried for some of those politicians don't really understand how much anger there is out there. Like what I think is going to happen in the next while, what will be the biggest story to cover in the coming years, and um, is that I think there will be a rent strike. I would, mm-hmm. and I don't, I think there will, that is because you, you you're yourself do involved in, in, in a lot of campaigning before, and the end result of that was a ballot box, and it was kind of, and it was a very complicated route to that, but there was a, the, the end result was we want a ballot box. Put In the local school, and people put, put in a piece of paper. This is what we want. Housing crisis will not follow that trajectory. It's not going to be that simple. But at the same time, people want something simple they can do. And that's why the, that's they've demanded action on the vulture, on the um, cuckoo funds. And they got got a bit of it. It's quite loose. So, what do you do? Rent strike. Like, yeah. how, how do you, how do you, how do you, and that, we've seen that before in the country. That's, that's happened before a lot, long time ago. I think there'll be a rent strike because I don't see how if it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and it gets more and more and more inaffordable, unaffordable. The only way you can fight back is by not paying your rent.
1: Yeah. I mean, I really think that you've you've hit on something there, or two things there. First of all, the level of anger. Um, now, of course, social media is not necessarily and particularly Twitter is is not representative of of everyone, but it does and we and journalists can get a warped sense of, of the public temperature. Which is always infinitely hotter and rising on Twitter, um, but the anger um, and and the and and a, a lot of it can be kind of blind anger that people have gone become so, uh, you know, gaslit or or worn down or in the mode like the neural pathway of the electorate has been developed around anger, and they're just not because of what has happened, and they're just not listening to. Mm. To people like Darrink could come out and he could say we're going to build you know we're going to build quarter of a million uh public houses and well, well social social housing whatever mm. quarter of a million pubs although might do it as well mm-hmm. like we're going to do that on that scale, and Neil Martin could come out and say something and and Leo Varg could come out and say something, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I just think people have got st- are, are, are just aren't going to listen now because there's no trust to to yes. take that information in. These are, uh, um. Complicate. I understand where that emotion is coming from. I deeply under understand it. Um, who knows where it will end up? I suppose is the other thing. Um, anger I, can be a force be, for a change, but it can it can it can go wrong too. I'll be writing for the
0: rest of my career about social housing leasing. I don't necessarily that in any um, proud, but that's not, not not something I'm looking forward to. But what we're doing now with leasing, so homes for social housing, is. That's just here for the rest of our life. And that's what the what can eventually happen, when people eventually maybe forgive and forget, is that the, their change does happen. But really what we're going to face into as a government, a black hole of money has been permanently opened. There's no closing it because I can't imagine a situation where you could, in any even EU law, force someone to sell a property to you. So we've got now a bunch of funds going a bunch of properties that are getting... Very, very lucrative amounts of money from the government, and why in their why would they ever sell that? E and, and, and why would why would they ever sell to a government? Why would they ever sell, even sell it back to the government? It's not in their interest. They've now got this thing that's going to constantly make money for the rest of the time, and it's happened in America. It's, they, they, it'll never turn around, and that's what worries me about this. Is that we're going to have examples of that for uh, forever, for the rest of our lives, and I don't know if this government will live it down. I'm, maybe I'm naive, maybe French people won't remember who Leo Varadkar is, remember who Michael Martin is, the Fianna government, they'll say, oh, that's just, we've got new problems of our time. Maybe climate change will come along and it won't be, well. It'll, it'll capture people's imaginations even more. But I just don't see, I'd be worried if I was a politician thinking like, how am I going to live in Ireland in, in years to come? There's so many people who will point at me and say, I am the problem. Because in okay. the fairness, they're bad decisions. Some of them made in good faith did cause this problem.
1: Does reporting on all of this depress you?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, sometimes I I get um, like very worn down by it, and I think because I don't see, I actually don't see an end to it. I can't see a way out of it really. Even even building um, like all the social housing, well, I don't know if that will necessarily happen, and whether it will actually fix fix the problem because their population is going it's like it's growing at a huge rate. Um. And I, I do find it very frustrating sometimes they can't. I don't. I kind like of touched on it earlier. All I fe- seem to be reporting on the moment is bad things happening, and I feel like sometimes that's maybe not abusing my prayers the wrong word—but not using it properly. Like, should I be trying to bring more ideas to the table than just pointing at that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad? Then I'm like, I'm only, I'm not, I'm, I'm not paid to make those decisions of what the solutions are. But I, I do get worried sometimes. I'm stoking some. Flames that you know will be very hard to to calm down and not focusing on enough positive stuff and um, yeah it does depress me because I can't see an end to it and I'm wrapped up in it too I you know I'm back living at home um, and I can't see a way out to be honest other than inheriting you know property.
1: Um, with that, like, first of all, don't feel bad because <laughs> because actually. You know, there, we all know about the scarcity of resources and the scarcity of big picture journalism um, and the superficiality of an awful lot of reporting. And and you're not doing that. Like you're countering um, bluster and you're countering quite bold reporting with something that makes people actually understand the systems behind it, which is which is really, really important. Some of those systems may be absolutely gross and you know, have you tear your hair out or or get people going bananas on Twitter. But like it's also adding knowledge um, and people will feel less helpless when they actually understand what's going on themselves, you know. So like you're doing a, a really, really important thing. You know, you're not just... Um, you're not just like randomly poking bears and like screaming about how terrible people are. You know, you're you're actually doing the work to explain to people what's going on, and then that's really really important. Well, um, I appreciate
0: you saying that. Yeah, you know, I, I hope that it, 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 there are, and there is. I think the reporting on that's done has educated more people into why it's a problem, especially people who are not affected by it as much.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah
0: because like the people who own essentially and don't have children living at home or have their children back living at home and now see why that's happening.
1: Mm. Um, if you like if you were uh, paid for the solutions um, are there any like two things that you would just be like just god damn it do this now uh,
0: I think it's gotten like if if it, how drastic can I go here
1: <laughs> well as drastic See, this as is would where like...
0: My, like, like this this is where like my maybe ideology would creep into it in, in that I think it's gone so broken now that our property system caters for investors as opposed to people just need to take it off them mm-hmm. again I, I, that will never happen that can't and, and maybe that would be cause some drastic situation down the line where i was set a priest in for awful things to happen i, I don't know like um but and and possibly put like I, I don't doubt and the second thing i'd do is i, I don't doubt that um Darrell Bryan and the civil servants around him, like they're all lovely people. And even even Johnny Ronan, I spoke to Johnny Ronan earlier this year, and he genuinely cares about it. He genuinely wants to fix it. He wants to, and he wants to say Johnny Ronan solved the housing crisis as well. That'd be great too. But um, like they, these factors in, that we maybe paint out to be some like villains, that they actually do want to help. But I think we need a fresh, fresh bunch of people in to try and do it. Um, mm. I think we've got a lot of market orientated people who, Look at the, who are involved in the housing crisis and involved in trying to fix it at civil servant level, all the way up to the, actually working as developers, working in business, working funds. He's just a new, a new go at it. Um, it can't be much worse. Like, it, it, Surely it couldn't get much worse. Um, it's just people need to be able to buy homes and get homes again because we've got, we're, no, we're starting to normalize paying more than a third of your wages on rent and living. At least. Uh, yeah, at least yeah, like, like that. and that's just well. Eventually, hopefully, I would hope we don't fall into a phase of just that being normal. Mm. And, what that, he, keep what it.
1: and what that does to this is the 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 really like the super short termism of that. Um, the the particular ideology that has uh, contributed to what we're we're in is like you can only push people so far. And do these people in government not understand? What could happen for democracy, for civility, for social cohesion, um, for all of those things if they keep putting people's nose to the, the grind, you know?
0: I think what we see, like I look at, let's say, Heinz is a good example of a, a big US develop, um, fund that's in Ireland and is building homes. But Heinz also, so Heinz and Heinz quite child- charges quite high rents, for proposing to charge quite high rents for departments that would, for the average worker, or maybe even the median worker, would be more than a third of their wages. But they also own shopping centres, and shopping centres have restaurants, and they own retail, and they own other things. But if people are paying so much money on living, just to, sorry, just paying a month on accommodation, where they're not going to have money for their other things. Therefore, yeah. th- those, those investments they have will be worth less. And also what we see now is, I think, people are also scurrying money away for a rainy day because they just feel something coming. Mm. And so they're now, and that's causing nearly a rainy day to come because people are just hoarding money. We see people saving billions, not just because of the pandemic, because they're saving billions because they need to, they feel like I need to save my money. Something could be bad coming here. And they have no means to invest it. They have no means other than just scurrying it away themselves, saving everything they got. That they don't spend on rent, spend on living, so that means restaurants, hotel, all these things aren't going to be like airlines won't have money coming coming from, from Irish people buying tickets to go abroad, so it just all like making people pay that much on accommodation. Has huge knock-on effects for restaurants closing, hotels closing, your people just not buying, I don't know, a piece of art from an Irish designer for their friend for the birthday, like or buying something much smaller. Like that's that's the knock-on effect. And some of these people who are involved in housing, like like I just pick Hines because they're an example. Kennedy Wilson also have a lot of retail investments. I don't see they're nearly screwing themselves in their other investments by charging so much in rent.
1: Hey Killian, maybe they aren't yes. that smart after all.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I, yeah, maybe they're going to show us. And uh, look, if they solve it all, and I'm wrong, I wouldn't care. <laughs>
1: um, one more, one more question. Although I'm, I am sad that we didn't get to talk about um, Johnny Ronan's, um interests at the moment because I am fascinated by what Colony Capital, his previous kind of big uh, financial underwriter, w- is doing. Considering they're offloading a lot of their stuff. And indeed, Tom Barrack, who heads up at uh, Colony Capital, mm-hmm. was arrested the other week. Um, uh, I believe on federal crimes of some description, charges anyway. You said um, it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> federal <laughs> charges, charges. Um, OK, so, yeah, this is my final question. And thank you so much for this chat and your insight and, and your reporting generally. Um, but if you had limitless resources I'll leave a laughter track uh, there there for a second. Um, what would you investigate?
0: Probably, I'd love to. Mm, th- I'd love to make uh, a database of all the people who are lobbying the government on housing, um, because it's a bit piecemeal. We don't know exactly what they're all saying, and some of it's not really recorded very well through just, I think, some laziness, not not necessarily corruption, to cover it up. I, like and i think noteworthy the journalists investigative laugh are looking to do something like that but that, that i'd love to do something like that if i'd that that's a that's a lot of work to to do something you you need to be your sole thing to do and and you could only capture the moment in time unless that was your again in this case i have limited resources i just if i could have something constantly rolling on it would be that because i think people don't know enough about what what people are set, pay, telling our politicians and mm. telling our civil servants and how much they're informed. And it's scary to me how much they're informed by it or how much they swallow it up. And that's not me saying they swallowed it up. Like that's, a, that's the industry saying themselves that the government is swallowing up their ideas they bring to them. It happened with the fast-track housing scheme. They brought that forward, and the exact thing that the developers asked for was put into Irish law and and, and for the fast-track housing bill. And then what was the... And shared equity, like... It's near, it's not quite word for word, but it's essentially exactly what they asked for with some small differences. I think mean, that's scary. That's that. That's possibly a level of naivety. Is that laziness. Is our civil servants overworked. They can't come up with their own ideas. But I don't think it's a good place where you're, you're at, where people can just come in and suggest a thing to do and it just gets put into be the new policy. Same happened with the exemption for funds that are leasing, funds that are leasing to the state now for social housing have an exemption from that new high level, um, higher rate of stamp duty. Ready Resi, a social housing body, I call them a fund, they call themselves a social housing body. Um, They proposed that word for word exactly what was put in. Um,
1: I would like lobbying TV that was just like a rolling <laughs> um, live broadcast of all lobbying meetings. And then I think people would be pretty careful about what they said.
0: We'll just disclose it all. I don't know why the government don't disclose it all. Just don't wait for me to the FOI. Just put it all out there. Give mm. a lot. Like, like, I think that can only serve the people better.
1: Killian Woods from the Business Post. Um, you're doing great work. Keep it up, even though it might be a little bit depressing. Um, it's very much appreciated. Um, thank you so much for joining us, for joining me and United Ireland on Byline.